One of the most unusual verses in the Bible in that it surprises people that it's even in the Bible is Paul's statement to the Philippians found in chapter 1 verse 29 where we read these words. Paul said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. That's not surprising that we read that God has given us faith as a gift, that's why we believe in him. Without the gift of faith, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. He has granted us not only salvation as a gift, but he has granted us faith in order to believe upon Christ for salvation. To you, it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. However, what is surprising, at least the first time you read it, are the words that he has also granted to us suffering for the sake of Christ. In other words, God has given us suffering as a gift. And the suffering, folks, that he's talking about here is the suffering of being persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this may not be the type of gift that you had hoped to get from God, but whether or not we want it or if we don't want it, it's ours. And persecution will be something that we as Christians will experience for the rest of our lives until we are home in glory. The Word of God makes this abundantly clear. For example, we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice there it's a word of certainty. We must. There's no doubt about it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, a word of certainty. We will be persecuted. And Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation. Again, there's no question about it. So in light of these statements, and there are many more found in scripture, we know that persecution for our faith is something that is unavoidable. It is a certainty that's inescapable. Therefore, what we need then is some very specific information from the Lord instructing us on how to handle persecution when it comes. And that's exactly what we have from Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Here's what the Lord said in the fourth and the final beatitude found in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now, a few weeks ago, we began to examine these two verses, and we discovered several things about this beatitude. First of all, we discovered that this beatitude is different from the previous three beatitudes, in that this is the only beatitude that Jesus elaborates on. The others are just brief statements of fact, but in this beatitude, Jesus actually gives some commentary. Secondly, this fourth beatitude is the only one that does not mention a specific character quality that marks citizens of Christ's kingdom. All the other Beatitudes reveal what true believers are like in terms of our transformed character due to our conversion. So that we are poor in spirit. We mourn over our sin. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. However, this fourth Beatitude doesn't mention anything 
about our character. Instead, it tells us that as a result of our transformed character, we will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And so, knowing that all of his followers would soon be experiencing persecution, Jesus used the fourth beatitude to explain some very critical truths about persecution. Now, as I mentioned last time we studied this beatitude, we can see that Jesus structured his words in such a way that they reveal three basic truths about being persecuted for the faith for the sake of righteousness. With the first truth, which we focused on a few weeks ago, being this. Persecution comes in a variety of ways, a variety of forms. The beginning of verse 22 says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil. Now the primary thought of these verses is that those whom God has blessed, those whom God has set his approval on them because they are true, genuine believers, will experience a wide range of persecution. In other words, persecution will not be limited to one type of mistreatment. It will come to believers in a variety of ways. Springing from an inner attitude of hatred, which is where it begins, Jesus said that unbelievers will outwardly express their contempt for Christians by first ostracizing them. Which in this context, because the word means to separate, he's talking about putting Jewish Christians out of the synagogue. They're separated from their kinsmen. That is to say, they'll excommunicate them, making them social outcasts by shunning them from Jewish society. In addition, believers will be insulted, meaning they'll be verbally insulted, attacked with abusive words, vocally assaulted. In other words, when the world persecutes believers, it sometimes persecutes us by the things that they say about us, words that can deeply hurt us and deeply cut us. And finally, Jesus said that we can expect to be persecuted by unbelievers in that some of them, he said, will scorn your name as evil. And what this means is that we will be accused of all kinds of things that we're not guilty of. Falsely accused, slanderously accused. Now, most likely in mentioning the words your name, as in scorn your name as evil, the Lord had in mind names like Christians or follower of Christ or disciples of Christ or people of the way or something like that, some such designation that identifies us as his people. Jesus said that just because we bear his name and for no other reason, we can expect to be falsely accused of things just as he was falsely accused. However, it's also true that unbelievers scorn our personal name in the sense that they try to defame our character by making false accusations against us. And they will do this with one goal in mind, and that is to destroy our reputation. I experienced this a number of years ago when a man who didn't attend Lakeside, but his wife did, he accused me of leading a double life, a secret life, because he was certain that he saw me at Clearwater's executive airport where I kept my very expensive Cessna airplane. <laughs> you can't be making this stuff up. This is, this is true, he said. Now, this man was so sure that I was living a deceptive other life, being some type of wealthy jet setter, that he began telling others about this. 
And when it came to my attention, not only was I incredibly amused by this, but all I had to do to convince people that this was absolutely ridiculous and not true at all was to remind them of how challenging I find it driving my car on US 19. So I would say to people something like this, listen, if you've ever seen me drive my car on 19, then you know that I'm not about to fly a Cessna airplane in the sky. And those who know know me well certainly had to agree. So I must have a lot of doubles all around the world because I hear people say, well, I, I met someone who looks just like you. So there you go. Now, eventually, this man who started this false rumor came to see how wrong he was and that it was a case of mistaken identity. But no doubt that behind the scenes, this was a satanic attempt to smear my name by defaming my character and destroying my reputation and credibility as a pastor. But this kind of thing Jesus said is something that every Christian can expect one way or another, although it may not be as far-fetched as being accused of leading a double life. Now, this is where we stopped a few weeks ago, but today as we continue looking at this fourth beatitude, we have come now to the second truth that Jesus gave about being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, which is that, number two, persecution comes to us because of him, because of Christ himself. I'd like you to notice how Jesus ended verse 22, Luke chapter 6, verse 22. He said these words, for the sake of the Son of Man. Our Lord said that unbelievers will hate you, they will ostracize you, they will insult you, they will scorn your name, all because of him, for the sake of the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. In other words, the reason we are so persecuted has nothing to do with us personally, We're persecuted because the world hates Christ. Now let's think about this. Jesus said that we suffer persecution because of him, meaning that the world hates him and therefore they hate us because we follow him. Question is, why does the world hate Jesus? What is it about Jesus that they would hate? After all, he's perfectly holy. He's never sinned. He's not even capable of sinning. He's righteous. Everything he does is right. Everything he says is true. He's never lied. He's never misled anybody. So why should the world despise him? Well, Jesus explained why in John chapter 15. Now we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, but I want to take it deeper today. I'd like you to turn there or open your tablets or whatever you use for a Bible. John chapter 15, and I want to read to you verses 18 through 25. If the world hates you, You know that it hated me before it hated you. And by the way, it sounds good to hear your Bibles opened. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. They've done this to fulfill the word that's written in their law. They hated me without a cause." Now, by these words, Jesus emphatically declared that the world, meaning what? Meaning the world of unbelievers, hates him just as they hate God 
the Father. As I said a moment ago, though he was certainly the most righteous person who has ever lived, yet the world hated him. From the time of his birth, when Herod tried to kill him, to his crucifixion, the world has been venting its anger against Jesus Christ. And they continue to vent their anger towards Christ by taking out their hostility on us as his representatives. They can't get to Jesus, so they come at us. Paul said in Galatians 6.17, I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. In other words, I am receiving in my body what was really intended for Jesus. He means stripes, beatings, whippings. Meant for Christ, but he's in heaven, so they're coming after me, Paul said. And I bear in my body those marks that if Jesus were here, they'd inflict upon him. So again, why does the world hate Christ? And then transfer that hatred to us. Well, notice again what Jesus said in verse 20 of John 15. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Now, on several occasions prior to this, Jesus had told his disciples a very basic truism that applied to their relationship with him. He told them something that everybody understood, everybody acknowledged, and that is that a slave was not greater than his master. That's just common sense. And now here in John 15, the Lord mentions the same truth again, only now he does it in the context of persecution. In order to make the point that if a slave isn't greater than his master, and he isn't, then he certainly can't expect any better treatment than his master. And that's exactly why Jesus said that they, his disciples, his followers, can expect persecution and hatred by the world because he was persecuted and hated by the world. But again, I raise the question, why was Jesus so hated and persecuted by the world, especially in light of his righteous character? Well, he now tells us. He specifically tells us why in verse 21 of John 15. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because, here's the reason, here's why, because they do not know the one who sent me. This is a profound, deep statement by Jesus because it reveals the true spiritual condition of those who oppose him. They don't know the one who who sent him. They don't know the Father. They don't know the Father in a salvation kind of way. They don't know the Father in a personal relationship kind of way. And they're not interested in knowing him. And they're not interested in having a relationship with the Father. That is to say that the world willfully refuses to know God. They are belligerent in their ignorance because they don't want to know him. They don't want to know his truth. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, we read that the tragic history of mankind is that he is constantly suppressing the truth about God. He's holding it down. He's resisting it. He's stifling it by creating his own gods and following after foolish speculations that he invents and then calls religion. You see, folks, this is why the world of Christ's day hated him so much. It's because he revealed God to them. And they didn't want God revealed to them. Tragically, they were very content 
very satisfied with their religious traditions and, and all their customs. And going back to John 15, we see how Jesus illustrates this very truth of the world's willful ignorance of God from his own personal experience. John chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. Listen to this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done amongst them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. So what does Jesus mean by these words? Especially the words, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Well, he certainly wasn't saying that if he never came to earth, then men wouldn't be guilty of sin because they were sinners long before Jesus was born and came to this world. People have been sinners since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Listen closely. What our Lord is referring to is being guilty of a very specific sin, the sin of rejecting Him. In other words, He is saying to those religious leaders of Israel, I came and fully revealed God to you. I revealed Him to you by my works, by my life, and in your rejection of me, you have committed the sin of rejecting God himself. And therefore, the mask of your hypocrisy has been ripped off. You don't love God, as you say you do. You actually hate him. And the proof of this is that you hate me, and I'm God. Listen, the reason the people of his day hated Jesus so much was because he was righteous. And therefore, he exposed them for what they really were. Hypocritical, self righteous sinners. See, before Christ came, men could continue to put on a good religious show, especially the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. They put on this good religious show by pretending that they were better than others, more righteous than others. But by his, his words, his works, his righteous life, Jesus uncovered and exposed the inner hearts of the Jewish people by pulling their masks off, their masks of hypocrisy, their masks of self-deceit, especially the religious leaders. His words and righteous life forced them to see themselves for what they really were, not lovers of God, but haters of God. In other words, the light of His holiness revealed the truth about them. That they were really just sinful, belligerent, rebellious, self-righteous, legalistic phonies. And they despised him for it. And as a result, they sought to silence his convicting accusations by killing him. Now watch this. Even though, yes, they did succeed in murdering him, Jesus has left behind disciples, people like us, People all around the world, his followers, who have been inwardly transformed so that while certainly not perfect like him, we do to some degree resemble him in righteous character and behavior. And so they hate us because they hate him. Please don't be deceived by thinking that since people are so deeply religious, so devoted to their set of beliefs that they, they naturally just, just love God. Now, they may say they love God, but they only love a God that they've created in their own minds, not the one true God. What Jesus is teaching here is that man hides behind his religious appearance as being righteous and a lover of God, but in his heart he's just a rebellious creature who really hates God and is antagonistic to his truth. And how do we know this? How do we know this? 
We know this because when God appeared on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, they crucified him. That's how we know it. God came and they killed him in the person of Christ. And though they tried to justify their wicked action by accusing Jesus of being guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah, he claimed to be God, they were the ones guilty of sin, not him. In fact, their wicked action actually fulfilled Scripture. They didn't realize this, but they were fulfilling Scripture and verifying their own evil as well as Christ's innocence. Notice what Jesus said in the very last verse of this passage in John 15, verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill. This is what they've done. This fulfills the word that was written in their law. They fulfilled prophecy. They hated me without a cause. Jesus quotes here two Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 35, verse 19, and Psalm 69, verse 4, that both speak of man's hatred towards the Messiah without any foundation, without any cause. You see, in hating Christ, mankind proves that it's guilty, not Jesus. It's guilty because there was nothing in Jesus to justify man's hatred of him. And there is nothing to justify the world's hatred of Christians either. But they hate us anyway because they hate him. And they hate him because they hate the Father. They hate God. That's the point that Jesus is making in this fourth beatitude. The reason we're persecuted is because of him. We suffer for his sake. See, unbelievers hate you as a follower of Jesus for the same reason that they hate Jesus. It's because they are content and sometimes very, very smug in their belief system that fits their lifestyle and they don't want to know God. They don't want to know him since this would mean that they'd have to change their sinful lifestyle and they don't want to change. They don't want to repent. They don't want to forsake their sin. Again, I remind you of a passage we saw a couple of weeks ago, John chapter 3, 19 and 20. Jesus said this, this is the judgment that the light, he is the light, has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Do you get that? Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus said, men love darkness, meaning sin and unrighteousness, rather than him. And so they stay in that darkness rather than come to the light who's Christ. But listen, regardless of what the world thinks or does to us, Jesus pronounced those who are persecuted as blessed. Isn't that interesting? Think about this. The world curses us, but Jesus says that God blesses us. Arthur Pink, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he wrote this. He said, it's a very strong proof of human depravity that men's curses and Christ's blessings should meet on the same persons. But they do meet. They do meet on us. Man's curses, God's blessings, most certainly fall upon us, those of us who know Christ. However, really all that matters is what God says about you. Not what anybody else says. What the world thinks, what the world says about you, what the world does to you is relatively unimportant. But what is important, what is most important, is your attitude when you are persecuted. And that's why Jesus closes this fourth beatitude by telling us what our attitude should be when we experience persecution. He's already told us, number one, that persecution comes in a variety of ways. 
He's already told us that persecution comes to us because of him. And now, the third basic truth that Jesus reveals about persecution is that persecution should cause us to rejoice. Notice verse 23. He said, Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now notice carefully what Jesus says in these words. He tells us that in spite of the fact that persecution can be, as you know, very painful. Rejection, as you know, can be a very hard thing to deal with. He said, we are to be glad. Which means we're to rejoice in that day when persecution comes to us. Now the fact that Jesus uses the phrase, in that day reveals that persecution is not the constant, ongoing, daily experience of every believer. There are days when we will be persecuted, and then there are days when we will not be persecuted. In other words, though persecution is inevitable, it isn't going to happen all the time. It will happen on occasion, but when it does happen, we are to respond, Jesus said, by rejoicing. In fact, We're actually to do more than merely rejoice because notice Jesus said that we are to rejoice so much that it should cause us to leap for joy. This expression leap for joy is actually one word in the Greek language. It carries with it the thought of happy excitement, unrestrained gladness, and exuberance that speaks of deep, intense, fervent joy. We should be so thrilled when we are persecuted that it should cause us, at least in our hearts, if not physically, to jump up and down with glee. Although I would like to see some of you jump up and down physically. So now this is this is an amazing command given by Christ. He tells us that in the face of being hated, insulted, treated harshly, and lied about, we are to rejoice greatly. That's not what we might have expected Jesus to tell us. We might have expected him to say, when you're persecuted, fight back and retaliate. Don't take that from bullies. But he didn't say that. But listen, that's exactly what the apostle John and his brother James thought. They thought Jesus wanted them to do when they faced persecution. Notice what we read in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. We've not gotten up to Luke 9 yet in our study, but I want to just interject this here. When the days were approaching for his ascension, meaning Jesus was soon to return to glory, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you don't know what kind of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, when James and John, there were two brothers, called by Jesus the sons of thunder for obvious reasons, When they heard that the Samaritan village was hostile towards Jesus and refused to let him spend the night there on his way to Jerusalem simply because he was Jewish and on his way to Jerusalem, which meant that he rejected their Samaritan religion, these two brothers reacted to this hostility by asking Jesus to give them the power 
the ability to pour out God's wrath on these Samaritans by calling down fire from heaven to destroy them. Great missionary heart. But Jesus rebuked them. He rebuked them because they failed to understand his heart towards the lost. He made it very clear that his attitude towards unbelievers who oppose him and the attitude that all of us should have towards our persecutors is love and grace and mercy, not hostility. Jesus said he came to save hostile sinners, not destroy them with the fury of God's wrath. Now someday God will eternally punish those who have opposed him, but that is not our responsibility. That's not the way we're to respond to those who persecute us. Our response should be to help them come to saving faith in Christ. And that means that we are called to share the gospel with our persecutors. And that's precisely what Jesus taught in John 15, the passage we looked at just a few minutes ago. Going back, I want you to go back to that passage and notice that after, right after telling his disciples that they could expect hatred and persecution from the world, Jesus proceeds then to tell them how to respond to this hostile world that persecutes them. Verses 26 and 27. When the helper comes, the helper is the Holy Spirit, third person of the triune Godhead. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. Now Jesus said that instead of reacting in hostility towards the world for their mistreatment of us, we are to tell this Christ-hating world the truth about him. And what we specifically learn in these two verses is that as we present the message of the gospel to unbelievers, the Holy Spirit then will take our witness and he will testify inwardly to that person that what they are hearing from us about Jesus is true. In other words, as we outwardly witness to a person by sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit at the same time is inwardly witnessing to that same person, affirming the validity of what we're saying. You see, ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who mysteriously does the work of convincing and convicting an unbeliever that he needs Christ. And he does that as we evangelize by sharing the gospel. He doesn't act apart from us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word about Christ. Now this is how we are to respond personally to those who persecute us. We are to witness to them. We are to love them. However, it's important to understand that in this fourth beatitude, Jesus isn't addressing so much our personal response to our persecutors in terms of what we're to do towards them. He said that in John 15, but not here. But rather here in the fourth beatitude, he is addressing, note this, our attitude, our thinking, our frame of mind when we undergo persecution. Not what we do, but what we think. Our inner attitude. And he tells us that when we encounter any persecution, our attitude should be one of rejoicing greatly. Now, why should we do that? Why should we rejoice to the point of leaping for joy when people insult us? I mean, what's there to rejoice over when you're mistreated and ridiculed and insulted and rejected and slandered and beaten and mocked? Well, 
Jesus gives two reasons why we should rejoice in the face of persecution. First of all, because he says, your reward in heaven is great. Now notice, we're not told to rejoice because we enjoy persecution. No one in his right mind enjoys persecution. The reason Jesus gives for rejoicing is that he is going to reward us for suffering for him. And that reward comes when we are in heaven. Folks, do you realize how gracious this is of our Lord? How merciful? We don't deserve any reward for being persecuted. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. But God will not permit any hardship we experience for his sake to go unrewarded just because he is kind, gracious. And what exactly this reward entails, we are not told in Scripture. The Bible compares future rewards to crowns worn by victorious athletes, but we just haven't been told any definite features of our coming rewards. However, though we may not know the precise nature of our rewards, we are told that they are great. Jesus said, your reward in heaven is great. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said these very encouraging words that gives us just a glimpse of the greatness of our coming rewards. He said this, and this would be a great verse for all of us to memorize. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Let me read that again. This is profound. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And what Paul means by this is that regardless of how much we may suffer on earth for Jesus, it is light in comparison to the great weight of glory awaiting us in heaven. In other words, the future glory that awaits us in heaven far, far, far outweighs any suffering we experience for Christ right now. Commenting on this wonderful truth, John MacArthur in his notes from his study Bible wrote this. He said the Greek word for light means weightless trifle. And affliction refers to intense pressure. From a human perspective, Paul's own testimony lists a seeming unbearable litany of sufferings and persecutions he endured throughout his life, yet he viewed them as weightless and lasting for only a brief moment. As far as the eternal weight of glory goes, the Greek word for weight refers to a heavy mass. For Paul, the future glory he would experience with the Lord far outweighed any suffering he experienced in this world. Paul understood that the greater the suffering, the greater would be his eternal glory. Listen, regardless of what you are called upon to endure for the sake of Christ in this lifetime, regardless, perhaps it's being belittled, misunderstood for your faith by an unbelieving spouse or rejected by religious but lost family members and relatives or ridiculed for being honest and sexually moral by co-workers, by your peers or perhaps even physically being abused for simply being a Christian. Regardless of how difficult it might be for you, you can, you should, you must rejoice because God has a reward waiting, waiting for you in heaven. And he has such a great reward that it will far outweigh any suffering you experienced on earth 
in being persecuted. But it's not only the great reward that should cause you to rejoice, as if that wasn't great enough, there's more. That's just the first reason Jesus gives for rejoicing greatly when you're persecuted. The second reason we should rejoice in the day we're persecuted is because Jesus tells us, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Why does Jesus bring up the Old Testament prophets and the fact that they were once persecuted? And why should their persecution cause us to rejoice? We're not happy because they suffered. These were great men of God. We're not happy because they suffered. It's sad. No, but watch this. We are glad because our suffering means that we are in the same company of those righteous men of God. And therefore, it proves that we too, just like them, we belong to Jesus Christ. Folks, do you see what our Lord is saying? He's saying that being persecuted for the sake of righteousness causes us to stand in the same ranks as the prophets of old and therefore proves that like them, we too are genuine believers because we experience the same rejection from the world that they experience in Old Testament times. In other words, the reason that we can rejoice in the face of persecution is because persecution assures us that just like the prophets, that we are authentic believers with transformed lives of righteousness. And we know that this is the case because the world reacts to us just like it did to the prophets. They hate us just like they hated them. Listen, your, listen closely, your assurance of salvation must never be based upon a so-called momentary decision for Christ you made sometime in the past that has had absolutely no impact on the way you live in the present. The proof that you are a true child of God, one who has really trusted Christ for your salvation, is that your character, your character has been changed from unrighteous too righteous, and as a result, from time to time, you suffer for it. You see, the world will not tolerate those who are poor in spirit. They will not tolerate those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will not tolerate those who weep over their sin. They'll make you pay a price for that kind of godly behavior. And when they do, what should you do? You just rejoice. Because regardless of what they take from you, your dignity, your reputation, your property, maybe even your life, you have a great reward awaiting you in heaven. And you have the assurance that you're going to heaven when you die because you have been eternally saved by Jesus Christ through his substitutionary death on the cross. And you know that's the case because they persecute you just like they persecuted those godly men in the Old Testament. I ask you, do you have the assurance of salvation? There are many Christians who don't. For years I struggled with this myself when I was especially new in the faith. But you can have it. You can have it. God wants you to have assurance of your salvation. 1 John 5.13, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not presumption. It's not arrogance to say it. Because it's not based on you. It's based on Christ. You can and you should have assurance of your salvation. If you've trusted Christ, because there will be tangible evidence in your life, transformed character, that now desires, and this is the most basic 
of evidences. You desire to honor and obey Jesus Christ. Life is no longer simply about you. It's about Christ and honoring Him. Now, if that's not the case, if yes, maybe when you were young, you prayed a prayer, but there's been no change in your life, then don't deceive yourself. You're not saved. You still need to turn from your sin to turn to Christ, place your trust in Him, His sacrificial death on the cross is the sole basis for your salvation. And if you do that, I promise you that He will save you and you will enter a life of not only the forgiveness of your sins, but you will be persecuted for that. But oh, there's a great reward awaiting you. A great reward. God will give you the grace to handle persecution and there is a great reward awaiting you in heaven. If you do want to speak to someone about this, then just see me as we close the service, which we're going to do in a moment. But if you already know Christ, then do not be surprised when you experience persecution. It is a gift from God, and it is inevitable, because the world hates Christ. And the world hates Christ because they hate God the Father, and then they hate you too. Just remember to rejoice, because your reward in heaven is great. And you are in the esteemed ranks of those godly prophets who were persecuted as well. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for this fourth beatitude, so rich, so filled with precious truths, Lord. I pray that you will help us to go from here and think about what we've learned today and not just move on to lunch and not contemplate these deep truths. I pray that it will have a profound effect upon us. I pray for any here, any watching who really don't know Christ. They, they may have made a profession, but there's been no, no change in character. They live for themselves. They think only of themselves. They don't desire to honor you. They don't open the Bible. It doesn't have an impact on their lives. There's no influence of your word. There's no longing to do what you said there's no humility. There's no repentance. Lord, I pray that you'll convict them that they still need Christ to not deceive themselves, to thinking that they're Christians when they're not. But I pray, Lord, for those, those of us who have really trusted you, that there will be great assurance of salvation and that we will recognize that persecution is a very real part of our lives, but not to be discouraged. I pray you will encourage us because great is our reward in, in heaven. And all this affliction is, as Paul put it, momentary and it's light compared to what you have prepared for us. I pray that you'll help us have our eyes turned to heaven and not be too focused in this world. And Lord, we thank you that we are in the esteemed ranks of men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and Amos and David and all those great prophets of old, for they were treated like this too. So Lord, take your word, apply it to our lives. Bring us back tonight. I pray you'll give every elder wisdom to answer accurately and clearly from the word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.